Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Natalie Bacopoulos, Lan Samantha Chang, Stephen Schwartz, and Peter Turchi. You will now hear Peter Turchi provide introductions. I want to uh, introduce this. This is the panel on puzzle and mystery, the known and the unknown. And now I'll introduce all four of us, and then we'll just get up and tell you what we have to say. To my left is Stephen Schwartz. Stephen is the author of five books, most recently A Little Raw Souls, a collection of short stories. That book was the winner of the 2013 Forward Book of the Year Award, the gold medal winner in short stories. It's hard to do better than that. And it was the winner of the 2014 Colorado Book of the Year Award for Literary Nonfiction. That can't be. And is. He is. He teaches in the Warren Wilson College MFA program for writers and in the MFA in writing program at Colorado State, where he is fiction editor of Colorado Review. To my immediate right is Natalie Bacopoulos. Natalie received her MFA in fiction from the University of Michigan, where she now teaches. Her first novel, The Green Shore, was published in 2012 by Simon & Schuster. Her work has appeared in Tin House, Ninth Letter, Salon, Granta, Glimmer Train, The New York Times, and in the 2010 Penn O'Henry Prize Stories, among other places. Her book reviews appear in the San Francisco Chronicle. She's the recipient of fellowships from the Camargo Foundation, the Sozapul Fiction Seminars, and the McDowell Colony. And most recently, she was named a 2014-2015 Fulbright Scholar. In fact, she ran over from Greece just to join us. To my far right, Lan Samantha Chang is the author of two novels, All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost, and Inheritance, and a collection of short fiction, Hunger. She's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and she's a professor of creative writing and the director of the Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa. And I'm Pete Turchi. I've published six books, most recently A Muse and a Maze, writing as Puzzle, Mystery, and Magic, which was our inspiration, it's not a coincidence, and uh, Maps of the Imagination, the writer as cartographer. I teach creative writing at the University of Houston and also in the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. And I'm going to do a, a sort of introduction to the topic, so I'm going to go first, and then we'll, we'll narrow in. I want to begin by acknowledging what I'm not talking about, puzzle and mystery in the writing process. In the book I've just published, I refer to these as the muse and the maze. The maze represents all of the conscious work we do when we draft and revise, when we assemble and organize the parts. In every poem, story, or novel, we're configuring information, words, images, characters, scenes, ideas, to lead the reader on a kind of journey. We refer to that conscious configuration as craft, and we talk about it quite a lot. We talk about it in class after class. We talk about it in panel after panel, year after year here at AWP. But it's important to recognize what we all know to be true. No amount of studying, no amount of diligent practice, no given number of hours spent at the keyboard will guarantee that we produce anything beautiful or transcendent. That's where the muse comes in. If the notion of an actual muse seems quaint or romantic, think of it as inspiration, intuition, indigestion, the unconscious or the subconscious. We tend to talk less about that part of the writing process largely because we can't teach it. We can teach the arrangement of image, we can talk about scene and syntax and suspense, but we can't teach anyone to be inspired or to create beauty. And yet it's essential to keep those mysterious elements of the process in mind because to leave them out is to create the impression that they're unimportant, whereas they are, as we all know, essential. And while we can't teach them, what we can do is cultivate them. And we can try to stop ourselves in workshops and other conversations if we hear everyone talking as if writing fiction were a mechanical act, one that can be practiced and perfected. Writing can, of course, be practiced and improved, but great writing often involves one or more moments of transcendence, of something inexplicable or mysterious. The composition of a story or poem or novel is a puzzle for the writer, whose job is to decide what to include, what to exclude, and how to organize the parts. The problem is compounded by the fact that we begin to write without knowing precisely what we're trying to create. The work continually changes form and emphasis and purpose. Characters disappear, new characters are added. 
Some scenes grow longer, others are reduced in summary. A pocket watch that just happened to be in a dresser drawer suddenly seems to indicate something larger. We can't compose the puzzle or arrange the words and sentences and characters and events most effectively until we finally feel confident that we understand what it is we're trying to create. But process is not, as I've said, what I'm going to talk about. While composing a poem or piece of fiction is like composing a puzzle, the finished work is not presented by the writer as something for the reader to solve. There may be puzzles within a story, aspects of plot or character or imagery or meaning that the writer arranges with the expectation that the reader will actively participate in their assembly, but the story as a whole is not a problem with a solution. Like Ariadne's thread allowing Theseus to journey into and safely out of the mythical labyrinth, a story means to lead the reader somewhere. But the destination isn't a monster or a pot of gold or a bit of wisdom. Instead, the destination is something or several things to contemplate. The best fiction in poetry leads the reader not to an explanation, but to a place of wonder. How do we know? Because the books and stories and poems that mean the most to us are the ones we want to read again, to re-experience and reconsider. I'd like to focus then on the delicate balance in any given work of the artful strategic arrangement of information and the recognition of mystery. To do that, I want to revisit one of the most frequently quoted statements by one of our most frequently quoted writers. When he was just 28, Anton Chekhov wrote in a letter, I've always insisted that it is not up to the artist to resolve very specific questions. Only the individual who has never written and never dealt with images can say that there are no questions in his sphere, just a solid mass of answers. You're right to demand that an artist take a conscious attitude to his work, but you confuse two concepts resolving a question and posing a question correctly. Only the second is required of the artist. The judge must pose the questions correctly. Let them be resolved by the members of the jury, each in accordance with his own taste. In that same letter, Chekhov makes clear that the correct posing of the question is a significant responsibility. He says, an artist observes, selects, guesses, arranges. These actions alone must be prompted by a question. If he did not ask himself a question at the very start, there would be nothing to guess and nothing to select. If an author were to boast to me that he had written a story without having thought through his intentions first, on inspiration alone, I would call him mad. According to Chekhov, then, the artist, A, asks himself a question, B, thinks through his intentions, C, observes, D, selects, and E, arranges. In short, he's encouraging the writer to be a kind of puzzle maker. The crucial difference being that the completed puzzle leads readers to a provocative question. While we might endorse this pretty easily, not every writer of great literature in the past would agree. In fact, it's likely that Aristotle, Homer, and Euripides would have disagreed. And we know that Tolstoy disagreed with Chekhov. Tolstoy famously told Chekhov, Shakespeare's plays are terrible. Yours are even worse. <laughs> By that time, Chekhov believed that the writer's job was to explore and consider. He didn't. If you read Chekhov's uh, earliest stories, in fact, you'll find uh, stories that close pretty neatly, almost disappointingly uh, neatly. It was something that he came to appreciate by the time he was a wise old man of 28. He was criticized for the way that he wrote as a mature artist. Andrei Turkov wrote, The characteristic absence in Chekhov's work of any overt moralizing, of the pointing finger and clear hints to the reader, who was left the right to judge for himself what the writer had depicted, was taken by critics not as a particular and original literary style, but as a major conceptual and literary defect. He was accused of indifference and social insensibility. Truly serious literature in that time and place was supposed to point the reader in one direction, to offer instruction. So this business about the importance of recognizing mystery is not some inviolate truth. It's a belief or a choice, one very much dependent on time and culture. Today, most popular fiction, including genre fiction, works hard to provide explanations. Despite the label we give them, classic mystery stories, such as the Sherlock Holmes stories or Agatha Christie's novels, would more accurately be called puzzles. When we get to the end, everything of consequence is resolved, explained. In contrast, at the end of A Passage to India, The Quiet American and Beloved, the narrative is resolved, but a few key questions are left for the reader to ponder. Both before and after Chekhov, countless writers have weighed in on this issue of balancing puzzle and mystery. John Keats argued strongly for mystery. It struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, 
especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And yet, Keats contained those mysteries in familiar forms, including the sonnet, the epic, and his imitation of Spencer. When F. Scott Fitzgerald started work on a new novel, one that eventually became The Great Gatsby, he was concentrating on shape. He wrote to his editor, Maxwell Perkins, I want to write something new, something extraordinary and beautiful and simple and intricately patterned. Among other patterning devices deep in the weave of the final draft is the repetition of key words, including twilight, shadow, and ghost. The word light appears over 100 times in The Great Gatsby in various forms. And yet the incessant references to fading and darkness, the elaborate machinations of circumstance necessary to the most dramatic sequence, when Daisy, driving Gatsby's car, kills Myrtle, who had reason to believe Tom Buchanan was behind the wheel, None of those formal considerations reduce one of the most haunting American novels. On the contrary, they provide a framework for a book many of us have not only been moved to reread, but to understand differently each time we read it. Like many other artists, Catherine Ann Porter saw her work as imposing meaningful order on reality. Human life itself may be almost pure chaos, she said, but the work of the artist, the only thing he's good for, is to take these handfuls of confusion and disparate things, things that seem to be irreconcilable, and put them together in a frame to give them some kind of shape and meaning. Her novella, Noon Wine, is a drama carefully orchestrated, first to encourage us to judge its main character, Mr. Thompson, harshly, then move us to some degree of sympathetic understanding so that we might comprehend the logic that leads him to desperate anxiety and finally to suicide. But the fact that we understand his reasoning does not keep us from contemplating how he might have avoided that end and how our own view of the world might narrow our sense of possibilities. While one might think that writers who hold strong religious and political views would be inclined toward didacticism, and many are, Flannery O'Connor's faith insisted on the recognition of the unknown. She wrote, the type of mind that can understand good fiction is not necessarily the educated mind, but it is at all times the kind of mind that is willing to have its sense of mystery deepened by contact with reality and its sense of reality deepened by contact with mystery. But mystery is not obscurity or mere ambiguity. In Mystery and Manners, she reminds us, St. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, The dragon sits by the side of the road, watching those who pass. Beware lest he devour you. We go to the Father of Souls, but it is necessary to pass by the dragon. No matter what form the dragon may take, she said, it is of this mysterious passage past him or into his jaws that stories of any depth will always be concerned to tell. When we read her stories as writers, we see how again and again she carefully arranges character, atmosphere, and event so as to force one or more poor souls into direct confrontation with a dragon, so close that he can hold a gun to her head or run off with her artificial leg. I'm not sure O'Connor would have been terribly happy to share a room on the sofa with Vladimir Nabokov, but they shared this one crucial belief. Nabokov was not, of course, a devout Catholic. He was instead a composer of chess problems and an amateur scientist fascinated by butterflies. Yet he, too, believed that examining reality heightens our sense of the unknown. He wrote, in a work of art, there's a kind of merging between the precision of poetry and the excitement of pure science. And the greater one's science, the deeper the sense of mystery. This balancing of science and mystery, what Borges called the algebra and the fire, is easy to recognize in finished work, whether the results seem successful or unsuccessful. The greater challenge is to recognize how to balance our rational work, that artful arrangement of materials, with the questions we find most compelling, and how to pose those questions for the reader. In the title essay of his book, The Half-Known World, which I cannot recommend highly enough, Robert Boswell says, what I can see in the story or novel I'm writing is always dwarfed by what I cannot know. What the characters come to understand never surpasses that which they cannot grasp. The world remains half known. The beginner might understandably confuse that sort of not knowing with the vagueness and inconsistencies of early drafts, the sort of not knowing that results from not looking carefully or long. But Boswell isn't suggesting that we shouldn't interrogate our drafts or work to understand who our characters are and why they do what they do. 
Rather, he argues that we need to work even harder to make sure we move beyond easy explanation, to make sure our characters and the world around them resists complete comprehension in precisely the way our world so often resists our understanding. In an interview he gave just last year, Stuart Dybeck gave some indication of the challenge we face in trying to shape the work while stopping short of overdetermination. Rather than feeling that every moment you've got to exert this enormous control, he said, you can take that, the attitude that your job as a writer is to set things in motion. Younger writers labor mightily to exert control over their materials, but I want to surrender to the story. I want to write a story that's mysterious to me, that's smarter than I am. If I'm trying to give you the answers to something I just wrote, it's failed in some way. The writer can talk about intention, but that's a very different thing than saying exactly what the story or the poem means. We each have our own attraction to some particular combination of the rational appeal of art and this other element, the mysterious or transrational. Then we need to work to recognize when we've satisfied our own standards for pleasing composition and to make sure our mysteries are well-defined. Mystery requires precision. A story that is simply unfocused, a story in which we don't know what the characters value or why they suffer or whether they're meant to be sympathetic is likely to collapse under the weight of uncertainty. That result isn't mystery, but a mess. Chekhov's formulation fails if we finish a story and find ourselves wondering about everything or about nothing in particular. John Ruskin wrote, it's quite easy to obtain mystery and disorder. The difficulty is to keep organization in the midst of mystery. Ideally, the puzzle or that rational composition can provide the pleasures of shapeliness even as the unanswerable question at the heart of the work remains open for the reader's consideration. Thanks. Wow, stadium seating. I feel like we should be selling popcorn here. Uh, echo what Pete said, and thank you all for coming. Everyone can hear me up there in the cheap seats? Good. <laughs> I've always appreciated people who can keep their mouths shut. And I do mean that as a compliment. Those individuals in grade school who restrain themselves from ooing to be called on, those who sit quietly at committee meetings, neither bored nor lost, just silently waiting for the right moment to add a rapier strike of sense to the discussion. Those people who, when you ask them, for God's sake, tell me what you're thinking, actually are thinking something. They've just been listening too hard to speak. Anyway, I'm not one of those people. I don't do well with silence. A nanosecond of someone else's is too long for me before I rush in and redirect my question or qualify my qualification. Silence has always unnerved me. Perhaps, since you asked, it's because of my childhood. My parents' main memory of me as a baby is leaving me alone in the crib for hours. Wasn't that a neglect, I once asked them? <laughs> oh, no, they said. You were happy. You sang to yourself. <laughs> well, who knows? The point is that silence has always fascinated me, especially the mystery of it in characters, and how rather than marginalizing them, it can actually complicate and distinguish them. It's difficult not to equate silence with secrecy in fiction. Sometimes an entire story revolves around the silence of a secret, such as Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Few other stories have disturbed readers as much. Thousands of readers canceled their subscriptions to The New Yorker when the story first appeared in 1948. The well-known story takes place in an unnamed town in an indefinite year on a sunny June day when the townspeople gather for one of their favorite ceremonies, spoiler ahead, which turns out to be stoning to death a random villager by lottery. The shock of the story comes from the juxtaposition of all these folksy villagers just so friendly and chummy, having left their dishes in the sink or their clothes on the line, greeting each other in the town square like they were all at a community picnic, only to pick up stones at the end and turn savage in their sacrificial duties. The story is entirely objective, cinematic in its presentation. We have no access to anyone's interior point of view, and thus we don't feel cheated when we learn the secret of what's really going on at the end. That is, the silent subject of what this collective group is up to is buried among the quotidian. I'll repeat, 
lots of chatter but no truth, which is a fundamental means how silence operates to perpetuate mystery and fiction with the assistance of prestidigitation, distract the reader with the surface busyness while stealthily plying and moving along the subterranean narrative. Early in the story, we see children gathering stones, but what could be more typical than innocent children playing with stones? Certainly, we don't imagine they're stockpiling murder weapons. Mole-like, with only the faintest trace of surface tunneling, this subterranean narrative creeps ahead until it bursts to the surface. To a large degree, any fiction that is written in an objective point of view and offers no access to characters' thoughts and feelings utilizes silence as an enhancer of the unknown. Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants being another classic example. The reader may rightfully conclude that the oblique line of dialogue, just to let the air in, is about an abortion. But for all the discussion between a couple sitting at a table outside a train station, there is little factually revealed compared to what's left unspoken. The reader might as well be behind soundproof glass trying to read the lips of the characters as to any explicit meaning. You'll find no central intelligence of a Henry James story here to guide us with expositional grandeur. Intimacy is traded off for intimation, that handmaiden of mystery. The unknown, or you might say the undemonstrative, serves to keep the reader at a tantalizing distance. It's not an easy thing to achieve without shortcomings. And one reason, a cautionary note here, that an objective point of view is rarely used. At worst, it comes off as the unwanted withholding of information, a coy dodge. When it does work, however, as in these two famous examples, it's because the silence behind the story is integral and organically necessary to the truth of the narrative. Just as atavistic repression drives the seemingly innocent townspeople in the lottery and pained avoidance characterizes the purportedly caring couple in Hills Like White Elephants, a narrative that withholds information needs for credibility to whisper through its subtext some fundamental basis for concealment. In the lottery and hills, silence tints darkly the whole narrative surface, but the unknown and the mystery that silence can engender is more often found within a single character. In Catherine Ann Porter's Noon Wine, a stranger shows up seeking work on a farm. The farm's lazy and stingy owner, Mr. Thompson, asks him, how much are you fixing to gouge out of me? I'm good worker, answers Mr. Helton. I get dollar a day, and that's pretty much all we hear from the untalkative Swede. Initially, his silence confounds the family members until they become used to his remoteness and stop trying to pry information out of him. Mr. Helton, a sort of genie at making a dry scrabble land flourish, soon turns the farm into a cornucopia of abundant butter, cheese, eggs, milk, and fat hogs, the likes of which the penurious Mr. Thompson has never been able to produce himself. Only at the end of the story do we learn of Mr. Helton's background. Considered a lunatic, he's wanted for the murder years earlier of his brother. But by this time, we have become enamored of and sympathetic to the clearly sane Mr. Helton, as has Mr. Thompson, who, in the one selfless act of his life, tries to intervene in Mr. Helton's arrest by an unctuous bounty hunter, but with tragic results. The withholding of information about Mr. Helton, we never go near his point of view, is not so much a plot contrivance as it is in keeping with the character of a hunted man who has tried to remove himself from the world and all its misunderstanding and seek sanctuary on a near barren farm. What's remarkable, while virtually saying nothing during the course of this 50-page story, is how enlarged, vivid, and riveting Mr. Helton's character becomes. Silence in this case, as with so many characters who speak little but have powerful presences, means anything other than invisibility. It's important to point out that this expansion of characters, the chief means for ensuring the reader doesn't in fact feel tricked when the plot revelation does occur. Mr. Helton, in many ways, after his past is revealed in a climatic scene, still remains unknown and more complicated than any of his past can account for. His near-mythic contribution to the farm can't be explained away by plot alone. Porter is very careful to pick a few incidents, particularly a violent reaction by Mr. Helton when the Thompson children touch his harmonicas, to prepare us for, if this makes sense, what will become the known part of the unknown. Too little explanation of the unknown will leave the reader dissatisfied, the fiction vague and lacking in authority. 
Too much explanation will eliminate all ambiguity and those contradictions that create complexity of character. Noon wine has the faded quality of a Greek tragedy, and yet despite the predetermination of such a form, it feels as if at any junction matters might proceed a different way. Those oppositional possibilities are actually the result of the unknown and known working in tandem to create tension. I don't know if I'd call it negative capability or just dumb luck when it comes out this way, but when you have the possibility of anything happening and yet the unstoppable proceeding, or to put it paradoxically, the random potential of an inevitable outcome, you create a state of excitable wonder in fiction. It is, however, not always the case that the known within the unknown is even partially explained. Take Melville's most bewildering story, Bartleby the Scrivener. Bartleby is arguably the most mysteriously silent character in all of fiction. I prefer not to proofread a document. I prefer not to go to the post office. I prefer not to tell you where I was born. I prefer not to quit these quarters. And finally, Bartleby prefers not to accept his employer's desperate attempt to help by taking Bartleby home with him. No secret is divulged. No explanation provided for Bartleby's progressive withdrawal that eventually results in imprisonment for vagrancy and death from starvation. Bartleby's mutinous is so profound, so intractable, that he is lost to all possibilities of being reached. Why does Bartleby behave this way? Among the theories, the story is a study of clinical depression, of modern alienation, of the dehumanizing effects of capitalism, is the view that Bartleby reflects Melville's own feelings of being silenced in the face of the negative critical and commercial reaction to his work. But much as we want to know what is the motivation for Bartleby's behavior, the story offers no answer other than the final line, ah, Bartleby, ah, humanity. We don't know what Bartleby is thinking, we don't know what Mr. Helton is thinking, and we certainly don't know what the people in the lottery are up to until the story's end. But we do know what Chief Bromden and Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is thinking and feeling, and how he came to be hospitalized as a schizophrenic Native American. In fact, early in the novel, he breaks the fourth wall and directly addresses the reader. So, what's unknown here, then? The discovery for the reader isn't in whether he is really unable to hear or speak, or even when the other characters will realize it or not. It's how he would become freed from the self-imposed condition of isolation and invisibility. All of which is to say that for a writer, mastering what is known or unknown isn't necessarily about withholding information from the reader. It's about delving into the intricacies of motivation. Randall P. McMurphy, the novel's hero, beloved by Chief Brondham, will also be suffocated by him. The known and the unknown have to be equal partners in that occurrence for it to be credible. Chief Brondham doesn't go from being invisible to the mercy killing of his dearest ally without a great deal of the unknown becoming known. The engagement in the mystery lies in watching how this transformation happens, because in the process, character has to be revealed that was formerly obscured. Or to put another way, Chief Broom, who considers himself small and insignificant, invisible, has to reappear again as a six-foot-seven Indian. He really is. In Edward St. Albans, Patrick Melrose novels, a particular kind of silence underscores all the wit and dazzling verbiage of the five volumes. As James Woods wrote in The New Yorker, the striking gap between, on the one hand, the elegant polish of narration, the silver rustle of those exquisite sentences, the poised narrowness of the social satire, and, on the other hand, the screaming pain of the family violence inflicted on a Patrick make these books some of the strangest contemporary novels. That family violence, however, takes place largely in the realm of the unspoken. St. Aubin, at the age of five, was brutally raped by his father. In the fifth chapter of the first book, Nevermind, through the point of view of Patrick, we witness the unbearable act. Then he was back down on the bed again, feeling a kind of blankness and bearing the weight of not knowing what was happening. He could hear his father wheezing and the bedhead bumping against the wall. From behind the curtains with the green birds, he saw a gecko emerge and cling, cling motionlessly to the corner of the wall beside the window. Patrick lanced himself toward it, tightening his fists and concentrating until his concentration was like a telephone wire stretched between them. Patrick disappeared into the lizard's body. The scene is one of the most accurate and painful descriptions of dissociation, the psychological term for detachment from one's body during trauma. 
Patrick will become self-destructive over the course of the novels, a heroin addict filled with self-loathing and rage. He does not tell anyone what has happened to him. The abuse continues until he's eight. Two books later, in some hope, an adult now and eight years after his father's death, his father's death, he confides in his best friend, Johnny, a psychologist. How do you mean abuse, Johnny asks. Patrick tries to answer. It was, he sighed, concussed by memory. And then the narration continues in Johnny's point of view. After having watched Patrick draw his way fluently through every crisis, Johnny was shocked at seeing him unable to speak. End of quote. Such a confession after years of vigilant suppression brings with it not immediate relief, but silence within sound, an admission perforated with gaping holes of speechlessness, as if shot through with bullets. In 1991, St. Auburn finally told his mother about the abuse. His mother's reaction, as he put it in a New Yorker interview, was, wasn't totally satisfactory. Me too, she said, meaning that his father had raped her as well. She was very, very keen to jump the queue and say how awful it was for her. With that kind of reaction, no one would have any trouble understanding why St. Aubin or his alter ego Patrick would never have spoken of the abuse earlier. The fear of being disbelieved, ignored, or unheeded, and only making matters worse and more punishing would scare anyone into silence. Such silences are not temporary. They are not resolved. They have no expiration date. They are long, limitless silences, even when breached. The core of such silence is always a mix of terror, rage, and undeserved guilt that strike a child with a voiceless paralysis no less crippling than a physical disease. The only recourse is exposure. The only relief, safety. The entire quintet of the Melrose series is written out of such a silence contextualized with the shrewdest social commentary, observant wit, and psychological self-assessment. If you're lucky enough to have the talent of St. Aubin, it's also the transformation of experience into art that releases you from the strangulating hold of silence. What St. Aubin has managed in Melrose books is to make the brutality of his childhood the hidden and unknown subject of the books. The rape and abuse are hardly referred to, while never letting us forget for a moment that its legacy infuses every sentence. That's a masterful use of silence at, again, its most subterranean level. I believe this is what the poet Adrian Rich meant when she wrote in an essay on Emily Dickinson. It is always what is under pressure in us, especially under pressure of concealment that explodes in poetry. I'm quite certain, too, that writers must come to know the silences within themselves in order to make use of them in their work. Know and study these silences like Trappist monks. I was watching Downtown Abbey the other night. As a reference point, I'm writing this in the middle of season five and noticing just how many unknown secrets and silences there are in this show. Lady Mary has slept with Lord Gillingham and has to keep that secret. Edith has to hide the fact of her baby. John Bates is involved in some possibly nasty business over the murdered valet, Alex Green, who brutally assaulted Anna. Barrow is attempting some quackery with drugs to change his sexuality. Even the dowager Violet Crawley has something or other in her past with the Russian prince Corrigan. Only Phyllis Baxter, Lady Cora's maid, seems to have come clean about why she stole those jewels. For all its explicit pageantry, Downtown Abbey is a veritable hive of secrets and silences, people shutting up quickly when anyone enters a drawing room, furtive conversations in the kitchen hallways downstairs. So, what's this all mean? Simply, never underestimate the power of silence. It's often the most formidable expression of character in a world filled with unknowns. Or, as Flaubert put it, the smallest thing contains a little of what is unknown. Let us find it. That is the way to become original. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I've chosen today to talk about James Baldwin's story, Sonny's Blues, because it is a work so many of us have read, and also because it's such a beautiful rendering of what my more philosophical and St. Augustine reading students this semester have been calling the irreducible mystery of human beings. These young writers are especially interested in fiction that does not diagnose, define, or otherwise reduce 
human experience, but instead shows, explores, and otherwise illuminates a singular experience of human consciousness, desire, and suffering. Sonny's Blues is, among other things, an exploration of heroin use that only once uses the word addiction. And in that way, I think it tries to create an understanding of drug use that is not clinical or empirical, but individual, emotional, and social. Yet the story is told from the perspective of a first-person narrator who has no experience of drug use and is judgmental toward those who do. Because our time is limited today, I'm going to discuss a few of the structural choices Baldwin makes, particularly choices of chronology, to create an approach to an issue that is so frightening, so consuming, and so ultimately mysterious that the narrator has resisted even trying to understand it for most of his life. For those of you who haven't read Sonny's Blues, this nameless narrator, an algebra teacher, and married man living in a Harlem project, has been charged by his mother to keep and watch over his younger brother, Sonny. Because he is young himself, absorbed in his life, and afraid of what he does not know, he not only fails to support his brother's desire to become a jazz musician, but judges him for it. And the two have a falling out, only to begin talking again after Sonny is released from prison. However, there's more to Sonny's blues than this summary reveals. The true narrative, the line that Baldwin chooses to follow, is about the narrator's attempts to reckon with his brother, past, present, and future, to listen to him and learn to know him and to show his love for him. The story chooses to begin in the middle with the narrator's realization that Sonny is a heroin addict. Its famous opening paragraph reads, I read about it in the paper, in the subway on my way to work. I read it, and I couldn't believe it, and I read it again. Then perhaps I just stared at it, at the newsprint spelling out his name, spelling out the story. I stared at it in the swinging lights of the subway car and in the faces and bodies of the people and in my own face trapped in the darkness which roared outside. This beautiful opening, placing us into the context of the narrator's world and society, is interesting structurally because it comes close to the very middle of the story's chronological events. At the end of paragraph two, the narrator states that what he has read in the newspaper is that his brother has been picked up for selling and using heroin. Sonny's Blues eventually goes on to describe Sonny as a child and adolescent. It follows his story through his imprisonment, his release, and his first musical performance afterward. When the story opens, the narrator is estranged from Sonny and hasn't talked to him for years. Baldwin begins with the narrator's subway ride because he knows that the story's true drama takes place in the narrator's mind. He is stunned by the definitive knowledge that Sonny has been arrested, that Sonny is a heroin user and most likely an addict. He has been unable to accept or approve of for years that his brother is living a jazz musician's life, a life that he does not consider respectable. It was not to be believed, and I kept telling myself that as I walked from the subway station to the high school, and at the same time, I couldn't doubt it. I was scared, scared for Sonny. He became real to me again. With the opening, his process of reckoning with this knowledge of trying to show it begins. Readers who have come this far in the story are generally given to continue on because they want to discover what will happen next. But there's also the underlying question of how this happened, how Sonny began using heroin. And although the narrator is shocked to learn his brother is a user, the reader suspects that his rendition of Sonny's story will uncover through the painful recognition of second sight that the narrator knew more about it than he believed at the time. Baldwin's opening creates structural possibilities. There is the choice about whether to proceed in the direction of the past or the present, and the usual choices about when to move into a scene. Baldwin chooses to continue on with pages of description, descriptions of the narrator's pain, of his memories of his brother that have been jogged loose by the content of the newspaper article, reinforced by the present action of his work as a high school teacher where he is surrounded by young people who remind him of his brother. 
It is not until after three pages that Baldwin chooses to dramatize one conversation. It's a brief chat with a person who does not appear again in the story, but who haunts it throughout, an encounter the narrator has with a junkie who knew Sonny as a schoolboy, a man who looks at him partly like a dog, partly like a cunning child. His eyes are yellow, he smells funky. He has sought out the narrator with a piece of information from Sonny's youth. Funny thing, he said, and from his tone, we might have been discussing the quickest way to get to Brooklyn. When I saw the paper this morning, the first thing I asked myself was if I had anything to do with it. I felt sort of responsible. We read forward here, curious to know why, and also believing from the description of the junkie's tone that he is sincere. I never give Sonny nothing, but a long time ago I come to school high and Sonny asked me how it felt. I told him it felt great. He also tells the narrator, listen, they'll let him out and then it'll all start over again. When at the end of the conversation he asks the narrator for money and is given five dollars, a terrible closed look came over his face like he was keeping the number on the bill a secret from him and me. Why this conversation? Why is it the scene that Baldwin chooses to dramatize, the first real scene in the story? The junkie is a physical representative, an emissary from the world of addiction. The narrator and the readers have been persuaded by the information he provided about Sonny's past. But by the end of the scene, we wonder if the story he has told about talking to Sonny in school is true. And even if it is true, whether his motivation for seeking out the narrator is as straightforward as we had thought it was. The information we glean about Sonny's childhood floats over the underlying knowledge that we gain about heroin and its effect. Baldwin is now faced again with the possibility of moving either into the present or the past. He chooses the present, describing the way he failed to write his brother until the death of his two-year-old daughter, Grace, from polio, the relationship has not been mended, but the lines of communication have been open, and when Sonny is released from prison, he comes to live with the narrator and his family. The second scene shows the brothers reunited, but the specter of the future hangs over Sonny. It is at the end of their reunion that Baldwin uses the word addiction, and he uses it in an attempt to gain knowledge in a moment of distrust that the narrator feels after their first dinner at home. I was trying to remember everything I'd heard about dope addiction, and I couldn't help watching Sonny for signs. I wasn't doing it out of malice. I was trying to find out something about my brother. I was dying to hear him tell me he was safe. The narrator's knowledge of Sonny's experience is limited. It is far outpaced by his fear about whether Sonny will have a relapse, whether he's going to begin using again. He is obliged to admit his knowledge is insufficient, or perhaps it seems the attempt to think of Sonny as an addict does not address the true nature of the narrator's question, who is his brother? Here, Baldwin begins a brilliant movement, backward in time. Safe, my father grunted whenever Mama suggested trying to move to a neighborhood which might be safer for children. Safe, hell. Ain't no place safe for kids, not nobody. The story moves back, still further, through a powerful passage describing the dangers of the world faced by the children as they listen to the stories of their parents, feeling safe, and the knowledge that they will grow up and face the danger and darkness outside. As readers, we are hurtled back to the narrator's earliest knowledge of childhood. But the reach into the past only reveals to the narrator and the reader that the answer to the narrator's question cannot be found there. Baldwin chooses to dramatize the conversation between the narrator and his mother shortly before her death. When she asks him to look out for Sonny, he quickly reassures his mother, don't you worry, I won't forget. I won't let nothing happen to Sonny. His mother reveals the story of the narrator's father's brother, a musician who was run over by a car of drunken white men. When the narrator reacts, Lord, Lord, Mama, I didn't know it was like that, the mother replies, oh, honey, there's a lot that you don't know, but you are going to find it out. After the mother's death, the narrator tries to speak to Sonny, but does not try to listen to what he has to say. I suddenly had the feeling that I did not know him at all, he acknowledges. This conversation begins the summary of a great estrangement that lasts for years. 
Baldwin guides us through a long period of resentment and understanding. We're reading because the story is compelling and because we have come to understand what is at stake. The mother's story has made it clear to us that the trouble goes back generations. And then Baldwin, in another jump over a white space, shows the narrator gaining knowledge that ties the past into the present story. It is the knowledge of grief. And it is described with such painful clarity that the reader gains the knowledge as well. I read about Sonny's trouble in the spring, he writes. Little Grace died in the fall. One day she was up playing. Isabel was in the kitchen fixing lunch for the two boys when they'd come in from school, and she heard Grace fall down in the living room. Isabel says that when she heard that thump and then that silence, something happened in her to make her afraid, and she ran to the living room, and there was little Grace on the floor all twisted up, and the reason she hadn't screamed was that she couldn't get her breath. And when she did scream, it was the worst sound, Isabel says, that she'd heard ever in her life, and she still hears it sometimes in her dreams. Isabel will sometimes wake me up with a low, moaning, strangled sound, and I have to quick to awaken her and hold her to me, where Isabel, and where Isabel is weeping against me seems a mortal wound. This passage is so lucid and so specific, and the pain of it is so unlike anything the narrative has before related that its effect on us is very much like one of a thump and then a silence. Then follows the scream, piercing, the sound of little Grace suffering and dying, and of the silent accompanying beseeching of how such a thing could have happened. It is a passage of terrible and specific pain. It is impossible to recover from such an experience, impossible to explain it away. Once it is known, it is known. I think I may have written Sonny the very first day that little Grace was buried, the narrator writes. I was sitting in the living room in the dark by myself, and I suddenly thought of Sonny. My trouble made his real. It is, I believe, within an unerring understanding of his story's true subject that Baldwin now moves forward to a scene in which the narrator directly asks his question of whether Sonny will continue using heroin. One Sunday afternoon was Sonny was living with us, or anyway, been living in our house for nearly two weeks. I found myself wandering aimlessly about the living room, drinking from a can of beer, and trying to work up the courage to search Sonny's room. Suddenly, I was standing in, in front of the living room watching 7th Avenue. There follows a revival meeting outside the window that flows into a conversation between the narrator and Sonny after it, and a scene in the bar where Sonny plays piano for the first time since he was imprisoned the year before. I don't have time to do justice to the extraordinary, beautiful, painful conversation, the wonderful passage of music in the story's transformative ending, but I want to focus briefly on the conversation the narrator has with Sonny about the revival singer. Sonny tells his brother, when she was singing before, said Sonny abruptly, her voice reminded me for a moment of what heroin feels like sometimes when it's in your veins. It makes you feel sort of warm and cool at the same time and distant and sure. He sipped his beer very deliberately, not looking at me. I watched his face. It makes you feel in control. Sometimes you've got to have that feeling. The narrator asks him if he has to have that feeling in order to play the piano, and Sonny replies, I don't know. The narrator asks about Sonny's friends who are addicts, and when Sonny replies, something told me I should curb my tongue, that Sonny was doing his best to talk, that I should listen. Sonny says, but of course, you only know the ones that have gone to pieces. Some don't, or at least they haven't yet, and that's just about all any of us can say. He paused. And then there are some who just live really in hell, and they know it, and they see what's happening, and they go right on. I don't know. This moment of not knowing for Sonny, not knowing whether it is possible to continue without heroin, and for the narrator, not knowing what will become of Sonny or what it is that Sonny is going through, is a central point around which the story moves. Baldwin's chronology of figure eight begins with the narrator's first, rec first recognition of that not knowing, moves back in time to explore the question, gaining insight and patience, then back through the mo narrator's moment of recognition, and into the final scenes of the story without being able to move past the moment of not knowing. The moment is eternal. The story uses a figure eight chronology. So you're beginning with the moment in the middle, moving back through the middle into the future, and then dipping back to the middle, in part because it is following the natural motion of the eternal and unknowable question, the crux of the question. It is less important that we find the answer to the question 
and that we understand what went into the making of it. Baldwin's choices place value on the importance of recognizing what cannot be known, and they show us that great fiction is an exploration of mystery. Thanks. Thank you all for coming. This is called The Known and the Unknown in Alana Ferrante. Rachel Donatio, in her New York Review of Books review of Elena Ferrante's novels, eloquently argues that these books are about knowledge. She writes, what kind of knowledge does it take to get by in this world? How do we attain that knowledge? How does our knowledge change us and wound us and empower us? What things do we want to know? And what would we prefer to leave unknown? It's a smart, astute observation to which I would add that these novels feel less about knowledge as a goal and more about its flux, how knowledge not only changes us, but how we might have a role in creating that knowledge. The books are about being in between, about becoming. Knowledge isn't always absolute, and truth, these novels seem to suggest, isn't either. The novels are about intimacy and distance, abjection and negation, about balances that are attained only to be thrown off and later restored. They are about friendship as another self, and the way such a merging of familiar and foreign create a sort of uncanny, allowing us to feel both comfort and disgust in its wake. Today I want to focus particularly on Ferrante's The Story of a New Name, the second of the so-called Neapolitan novels, a set of four books, three of which have been thus far translated into English. These novels follow the lives of two friends in Naples, Italy, Elena Greco, who narrates the books, and Raffaella Cerullo, whom Elena calls Lila. For some brief context, the first book, My Brilliant Friend, begins in the present, so to speak, when Lila has gone missing at the age of 66. Elena narrates, It's been at least three decades since she told me that she wanted to disappear without leaving a trace, and I'm the only one who knows what she means. There's not only a sense of pride in that knowledge, but perhaps also a burden, and yet it's also privilege and power. She, she, she writes, Lila never had in mind any sort of flight or change of identity, the dream of making a new life somewhere else. She wanted to vanish. She wanted not only to disappear herself, now at the age of 66, but also to eliminate the entire life that she had left behind. Elena continues, We'll see who wins this time, I said to myself. I turned on the computer and began to write all the details of our story, everything that still remained in my memory. It's this unknown, Lila's whereabouts, that drives the novels forward. But Elena's need to write it all down is hardly an act of memory or preservation. It's one of spite, of continuation of a constant battle and balance between them. She writes, how easy it is to tell the story of myself without Lila. Time quiets down and the important facts slide along the thread of the years like suitcases on a conveyor belt at an airport. You pick them up, you put them on the page, and it's done. What she means is, without Lila, there isn't much of a story, or much of herself. Lila is, as Aristotle would say of friends, her other self. Walter Benjamin, in his Illumination, writes that, to articulate the past historically does not mean to recognize it the way it really was. It means to seize hold of a memory as it flashes up at a moment of danger. The Neapolitan novels are a sort of seizing hold of a memory. Lila's disappearance, after all, is a moment of danger, but not only for Lila, but for Elena herself, as if she too might disappear with Lila, be made irrelevant, her whole past vanishing along with her. What I could become outside of Lila's shadow counted for nothing, Elena writes. Her identity is relational. If Lila disappears, who is Elena? And so she must write the books to keep herself alive, to keep herself known. Elena's memories come from, one, what she knows from her own direct experience, two, what she knows from talking with Lila, and three, what she has learned from a set of notebooks that Lila has entrusted her with years before, and that Elena, because she felt both burdened by and diminished by them, threw them into the Arno River. Her own rejection of knowledge, perhaps, but not before memorizing their contents as if to make them her own. She says, every page ignited my thoughts, my ideas, my pages, as if until that moment I had lived in a studious but ineffectual stupor. So Elena tossed away the notebooks far before Lila's disappearance. Technically, though, this is how she has access to this information that Lila has ne neither shared with her nor that Elena herself has witnessed. 
Recently, a friend of mine began making his way through the second novel, where Elena describes receiving the notebooks. Although he was equally moved and impressed by these books, one thing bothered him. He asked me, how did you feel about Lila's notebooks? Doesn't this device feel contrived? Besides, he added, even with them, there's no way Elena would know all she does. I'm not sure I buy it. It was a fair point, but I was so wrapped up in the story that I didn't care if the information was being beamed down to Elena from the moon. But because I try to resist the fervor and flimflam that surrounds each new anointed literary superhero, I wanted to think about this objectively. Could my beloved Ferrante be artistically lazy, relying on a tired device? Elena is clear to note when she first reads Lila's notebooks that they weren't diaries as much as detailed recordings, quote, evidence of a stubborn self-discipline in writing. The pages were full of descriptions, the branch of a tree, the ponds, a stone, a leaf with its white veinings, the pots in the kitchen, the various pots of a coffee maker, a highly detailed map of the courtyard. You get the picture. This bit of information might be an anticipation of the resistance Ferrante knew she might face, the sort of question my friend brought up. How could Elena know all this? Here's how. Yet whether Lila happened to record everything or nothing, whether Elena was there for every event or only heard them secondhand, she still must create her own interpretation. She has the facts, but stories are rarely composed of facts. At the beginning of the story of a new name, Lila has returned from her honeymoon, which, in short, did not go well. Elena, not having known that Lila has returned, spots her and follows her down the street. When Elena confronts her, asking why Lila didn't tell her she had returned, Lila answers, I don't care about others. I do care about you. Elena thinks, what was I not supposed to see? I climb the stairs that separated us and delicately pull aside the scarf, raise her sunglasses. The chapter ends here with this unknown, the two women looking at each other, leaving us to wonder what the two of them see. The next chapter leaves this unknown hanging a bit longer. Elena writes, I do it again now in my imagination as I begin to tell the story of her honeymoon, not only as she told it to me there on the landing, but as I read it later in her notebooks. I had been unjust to her. I had wished to believe in an easy surrender on her part to be able to humiliate her as I felt humiliated. I had wished to diminish her in order not to feel her loss. It's a powerful proclamation Elena makes to diminish someone not to feel their loss to reduce her to only a reflection, not a three-dimensional figure. Because Lila's pain was also Elena's, the self and the other split and come together. This honeymoon chapter, describing a violent scene between Lila and her new husband, Stefano, ends with Stefano saying, this inter- ends with this interaction between Stefano and Lila. So just try saying again what you said tonight, and I will ruin that beautiful face of yours so that you cannot get out of the house. You understand, Stefano says, answer me. Lila's eyes narrowed to cracks. Her, cheeks had t- her cheek had turned purple, but otherwise was very pale. Now, in her notebooks, Lila might have noted later that her cheek bruised purple, or this may have come from Elena seeing it later. It seems less likely that Lila would note that at that moment her own eyes narrowed to cracks. In fact, for a moment, it's unclear if we've been lifted from the told narrative of the honeymoon back onto that landing where Lila has returned and Elena has lifted her scarf and sunglasses to see the damage Stefano has done. I think the blurring of time and space is deliberate to further complicate the idea of the real and the imagined. But the last line reminds us we're still in that honeymoon moment with Stefano that Elena is still relaying it to us. She didn't answer him, Elena writes. Peter Mendelssohn, in his book, What We See When We Read, notes that characters are ciphers and narratives are made richer by omission. He argues that it is precisely what the text does not elucidate that becomes an invitation to our imaginations. So I ask myself, he continues, is it that we imagine the most vividly when an author is at his most elliptical or withholding? Has Elena Greco taken these omissions, the blank spaces of Lila's notebooks, and allowed herself to vividly imagine what has been withheld? to vividly imagine what is inherently unknowable, and that imagination becomes her reality. Could that actually be the point? Is this how she reclaims Lila, and therefore herself? Because Elena and Lila, as different as they are, are doubles, two sides, other selves, and in the traditional sense of the observer and the observed, Elena is more more reticent, more hesitant, while Lila is unpredictable, violent, and wild. But sometimes this reverses or shifts shape, the two of them melting into each other, as Montaigne has said of friends, quote, 
they mix and work themselves into one piece with so universal a mixture that there is no more a sign of the seam by which they were first conjoined. Elena both needs Lila to understand herself and is threatened by her presence. What is dear to Elena is threatening to Lila and vice versa. They are simultaneous threats. At one point, Elena comments, I was suddenly sure that without being aware of it, I had intercepted Lila's feelings and was adding them to mine. Both familiar and strange, beloved and repulsive, uncanny. Philosopher and critic Julia Kristeva and Strangers to Ourselves writes that uncanniness occurs when the boundaries between imagination and reality are erased. Building upon Freud, she notes that the uncanny is a crumbling of conscious defenses, resulting from the conflicts the self experiences with an other, with whom it maintains a conflictual bond, at the same time a need for identification and a fear of it. The flux between Lila and Elena is constant. When one is erased, the other is drawn in, and sometimes their narratives are parallel. When, for instance, Lila is forced to have sex on her wedding night, Elena is almost ferocious in her desire to lose her virginity, to not be left behind. Elena's doubled self has become unhinged and tells a story, both of them intense, though one story is dead and the other is urgent. While Lila and Elena mirror and balance each other as well as set each other off balance, there is also a future they're looking toward to give them clues as to what they might become. From a young age, Lila's sympathies lie with another neighbor, the mentally Al Molina, whose attacks of madness usually took the form of shouting or singing. Once, not long after Lila's marriage, Molina goes missing. She's found near the ponds, sitting in the water, red-eyed, leaves and mud covering her face and hair. When Elena and others bring her home, Lila watches from her yard. Here, Elena notes Lila seems moved, but also, quote, wounded by it and frightened as if she felt inside the same disruption, unquote. When Elena tries to join her, Lila's gone. The parallel of the two women is interesting and reasserts itself throughout the novels. Melina might represent an unwanted knowledge of what might lie ahead. But in one of my favorite moments of the story of a new name, Lila, newly married, buys a film projector to watch footage from her wedding. We usually have Elena watching Lila, and maybe Lila watching Elena. Lila sees herself in one way, and Elena interprets it. Elena sees herself one way, and Lila interprets it. Each of us narrates our own story to suit us, Lila quips to Elena. And of course, the lines blur between whose story is whose. In this particular moment, the two sit together and watch themselves on the screen, and we as the readers watch their watching. The first time Elena sees herself on screen, she is sitting beside her boyfriend, Antonio. I looked awkward, nervous, my face taken up by my glasses. But the second time, she's at the table with Nino, whom she loves, and she knows that to herself she was, quote, barely recognizable. I was laughing, hands and arms moved with casual elegance. I adjusted my hair, toyed with my mother's bracelet. I seemed to myself refined and beautiful. And Lila seems to agree. She says, look how well you came out, and further comments that Elena looks the way she does when she's happy. Elena watches again, this time focusing on the social dynamics at play in the scene. To go more deeply into this dynamic would be to another a topic entirely, but Elena further notes, the scene provided documentary proof of what I had intuited as I was experiencing it in reality. Maybe it's not so much knowledge, perhaps, that she's searching for, but validation. Ferrante's multi-layering here is intricate and elegant. It is artifice, indeed. Fiction is artifice. Elena Greco is telling us, you may be questioning my instincts, my interpretations, but I have proof here. My imagination and my reality are aligned. Lila, in her confirmation of Elena's happiness, sees, sees them that way too, at least at that moment. It's an interesting place where the two characters once again melt into each other before they split yet again. Later on, Elena and Lila find themselves saying goodbye to one another, taking on, in a sardonic mocking on Lila's part and a reluctant one on Elena's, the personas of their boyfriends and husbands. And Elena notes, suddenly it was as if we saw ourselves from the outside, both of us in trouble with our men, standing there on the threshold, actors in a recital of women, and we started laughing. They may not know yet exactly how to be women, but they know how to perform being women. Like Ferrante's other work, these novels are an exploration of the female experience, the collective truth or truths of being or becoming a woman. Elena notes that as a girl, she had only been aware of her little friends living with a sort of limited gaze. After understanding that Lila's newly married life was mysterious and beyond her own knowledge, Elena begins to notice women on the street, nervous, silent, tight-lipped, shouting insults, 
thin with sunken features or with, quote, broad behinds, swollen ankles, heavy chests. But what Eleanor notes that surprises and frightens her most is that these women, quote, appear to have lost most of those feminine qualities that were so important to us girls. They had, consumed by the, they had been consumed by the bodies of husbands, fathers, brothers, whom they came to resemble because of their labors of the arrival of old age, of illness. When did that transformation begin? With housework, with pregnancies, with beatings? Would my body too one day by, be ruined by the emergence of not only my mother's body, but my father's? Here she understands not only what she is becoming, but what she doesn't want to become. She more clearly understands why Lila was so upset by the mad Melina, a parallel doubling that becomes more relevant as the stories go on. So all this chronicling might be seen as obsessive, but as we know, obsession is so often not simply about the object, but about the self, a self Elena Greco is desperately trying to preserve. In her essay, Fail Better, Zadie Smith writes, to me, writing is always the attempted revelation of the elusive, multifaceted self. But she also notes that its total revelation is impossible. It's impossible to convey all of the truth of all our experience. Actually, it's impossible to even know what that would mean. When we write, similarly, we have the idea of a total revelation of truth, but cannot realize it. And so instead, each writer asks himself which serviceable truths he can live with, which alliances are strong enough to hold, unquote. The character of Elena Greco attempts the total revelation of truth. By trying to know another, she is also trying to know herself, understanding, of course, that she may not realize either. The careening toward knowledge may be more significant than its actual attainment. Elena Greco is hoping to find the, quote, serviceable truths that she can live with to uncover the knowledge that will preserve her alliance to Lila to, in short, keep them both alive. Thanks. I think given the time, rather than do big performance Q&A, we will stay down here, and if you'd like to uh, talk, come on down. Thanks again for coming out. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.